All right. Uh, I'll say a prayer and then we'll get started tonight. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you, having come through a week when some of us have thought about you, have striven to live a life for you. Um, some of us have thought about it a little. Some of us have probably thought about it a lot. And some of us have thought about it not at all. Uh, but all of us have failed to live up to what you have asked us to do just in the last seven days. And so we come together this, this evening and we ask for your forgiveness for our failure. We ask that we once again would be made right with you anew and that tonight as we join, um, we recognize that we are in your sight, pure and clean children. And so we come as those children in your presence as a group to discuss tonight uh, what has in the history of the church been a divisive issue. And so we ask that you would grant us your spirit as we try to understand uh, your word, your scripture, and how we are to interpret it for our lives. We just ask that you would be in our midst. In your son's name and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray all these things. Amen. All right, um, we're going to jump right into the scripture. Um, Joey, if you would read that for us. It's short tonight, just eight verses. And I will tell you before we get started, I've switched translations on you tonight. Um, I want to let you know that for a very particular reason. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But tonight we're not reading out of the ESV, which is what I usually use. Um, tonight we're reading out of the NASB, which is the New American Standard Bible. And it is a more literal translation. It's a little more difficult to read. I don't think it's going to be hard for tonight's verse. Um, we don't use it every week because it doesn't read as well. Um, as some of the other translations. But tonight, I think it's important that we've used that. All the scriptures that we look at tonight are coming from that translation. Because uh, as you'll see, we want to look at the most little translation we can for our purpose tonight. Okay, um, there are a few things in this tonight. We're going to focus on one in particular. We'll go through the parable real quick. I think it's pretty self-explanatory, especially given the first verse um, that actually tells us exactly what the point is. And that is that he's now telling a parable. And we're talking to the disciples. Remember, we've been talking to disciples the last couple weeks. And so the them refers back to the disciples that he's been talking about in the previous verses. And the purpose of this, he says, or Luke tells us very clearly, that the purpose of this parable is to tell them that they ought to continually pray and not to be discouraged, not to lose heart as they're praying for, in the parable, justice. If you pay attention through Luke, uh, justice is a big issue. Caring for the, the downtrodden, the oppressed, the women, the orphans, the widows, the sinners. And so this idea of justice comes up again and again in Luke, and it's all over the Bible, frankly. And so Jesus tells him this parable, which basically says, you know, there's this unrighteous ruler and this woman who comes and begs him for justice. And she's so persistent that the guy gets fed up with her. She's being a pain in the butt. And he finally says, okay, okay, I'll take care of it. All right. What does that say about God? in your minds? How do you interpret? Was, is he saying something about God here? What, Jesus said. what, what is Jesus saying by telling this parable? Mm -hmm. Part of it or the whole thing? Like the part that you just mentioned, like about the judge giving in because he gets... What do you mean? Well, answer either way you want to. I don't even have an answer. I was just <laughs> okay. <being> clear. <laughs> well, he tells just this little, uh, this little vignette parable, right? We've got an un just about the unrighteous judge and the woman coming to, to beg for justice. Right. And we're told that she's unrelenting. She comes back again and again and again. And then we're told he basically got fed up with her 
right? And he didn't want her to continue to come bugging him, and so he relented. And then he gives us a little bit of interpretation here. So what is he saying? Okay, the parable, I mean, I'm, I'm getting some blank stares. It is a little tricky if we try to apply um, a literal understanding of this parable that you put God right in as this unrighteous ruler, right? Um, we've seen Jesus tell parables and use examples again and again, and we've talked about it before, but he uses this um, device called, called arguing from a minor to a major. For example, when he talks about the birds of the field and the lilies, of, or birds of the air and the lilies of the field, you look and you see that God cares about them, and then he turns around and says, how much does, more does God care about you? So he's certainly going to take care of you if he's taking care of them. All right, that's a, a, an argument from a minor to a major, from the little bird and his love that he's shown to the little bird and the little flower, certainly you're more important than that. So of course he's going to love you and take care of you. We have something similar going on here. We have unrighteous judge, all right, unrighteous ruler, and this woman has to beg, but he finally acquiesces and relents and gives in. And so if we understand this as a minor to major argument, what he's saying is certainly God is not unrighteous, certainly he is righteous, so certainly he will care about justice for you and for others, so certainly he will hear you. Now, taking in the whole of Scripture and what we've seen you know, throughout time with Israel, we need to be a little careful by saying that he's going to come quickly. And, and there's a big theolo or long theological discussion that we can have about God's time and our time, and actually one of the verses that we're going to look at later um, addresses that a little bit. But the idea of quickly for God is not necessarily our quick. And so, but what we are assured is that justice will come. And that is reiterated again and again throughout Scripture. We're told other places not to take revenge for yourself, that vengeance, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. This idea that justice will be played out by God. Right? He, he's a just God. Do we believe that God is just? And Christianity claims that. You need to reconcile that for yourself if you think he is or not. And so that's, that's really the point of the, the parable. It's, like I said, it's not horribly complicated. And then we have this sort of question at the end that seems sort of oddly tacked on to me. I don't know if that does to you, but all of a sudden he says, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And the commentators will say that this is sort of a question asked that anticipates a yes answer. You know, what he's basically said is, have faith, don't despair, continue to ask God. And so he turns around and he says, when the Son of Man comes, and we're talking about, again, his second coming, coming off that long discussion we had last week about the second coming of Jesus and what that looks like. So that's right there. That's what we're talking about here. And so when, the second, when he comes back, is he going to find faith on earth? And we sort of assume from what he's just taught that he's instilling faith in, or the principles of faith in his disciples. So, so yes. So it's kind of simple. However... There's a word in here that I don't know if anybody, well, I'm sure a couple people have, have their ears pricked up when they heard it. It's in verse 7. Somebody who knows what the word is that's going to send up all sorts of flares. Yeah. What did you, I heard one over here. Elect. Elect. All right. What does that word mean? Um, this is why I've gone to the NASB. Um, my... This version that I teach from, I'll tell you, the ESV version is a more reformed, and I'm going to define that word for us as we go through tonight, translation. There is an equally literal translation, um, the NRSV, which I choose not to use here. Um, it is more Armenian and Wesleyan, and again, I will, will 
define that as we go on. Um, I choose, I need to, I'm, I'm gonna just talk for a minute because I need you to know where I'm coming from as we get into this discussion so that you can take it for what it's worth. I definitely fall on the Armenian Wesleyan side of the, the argument. And so I choose to teach from a reformed book so that we come across these words and then we deal with them and have that conversation. If we were to teach from this one, we just skip over all that kind of stuff based on the way the words get translated. For example, this one um, says cho chosen. So God's chosen, which by definition is the same thing, but when we're talking about the history of Christianity and the connotation and sort of the, the meaning that words carry beyond their actual definition, elect is a very laden word. It, it means something particular in the history of Christianity. And we're gonna talk about what that, that's, that's our discussion tonight. And like I sort of indicated in our prayer, this is an issue that has divided the church for thousands of years. Clear back to Augustine in the fourth century, Martin Luther during the Reformation, the big reformer, that's where we get reformed theology. And as I said, we're gonna talk about that in particular tonight, was a big proponent of predestination. Who's heard that term before? Is there anybody that's not heard that term before? Before we get started, just so we know where we are, and like I said, I lean much more towards the Wesleyan, um, Armenian side of this argument. I, th I think there's an answer that's probably somewhere in between that's the truth, but just by a show of hands, when I say Armenian, Wesleyan, I'm talking about sort of free will versus reform, which is predestination. Who would put themselves in the reform category, the predestination category? Anybody? We don't have to worry about arguing probably then. That was sort of what I was worried about because people get heated over this issue. I've, I believe that within the Christian faith there are sort of different categories of doctrine. There are things that we, for lack of a better term, we call close-handed doctrine. These are sort of the core of the faith that if you're going to be a Christian, this, you have to believe this. Things like Jesus was a real guy. He was the son of God. He died on the cross. He rose. If you don't have that, you don't have Christianity. And then there are other things that are more open-handed that we can have discussions about that we don't have to die and shoot each other over, although we have in our history, all right? Because we get confused. We think that, 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 that all of church doctrine is this close-handed, I must be right thing, when in fact there are doctrines that are more open-handed. And this one is probably like a there, <laughs> okay? It's not, it, it, it does matter, and we'll see by the end why it matters, but if you come out and you say, I'm reformed, it, it's not fair to say you're not a Christian. Like, you are very much a Christian. As a matter of fact, as we get into it, we're gonna get into what's known as the five points of Calvinism. And they're known as the five points of Calvinism. John Calvin was one of the early reformers with Luther. He's the guy that really set off predestination as a doctrine and laid this stuff out. He's the forerunner of, if, if you've ever been to a Presbyterian church or you know Presbyterian friends, that's reformed Calvinistic uh, Lutheran church. Luther's church, not Lutheran church. Actually, my, my very early years was in a Presbyterian church also. I've spent a lot of time in Reformed churches. And so if, if you're having discussions about this in your everyday conversation, don't be so arrogant and hung up on this that it becomes a dividing or divisive factor. It need not be. We can be on both sides of this, this uh, discussion and still get along. Okay, so we're just gonna jump into it. Um, and we're going to look at a lot of scripture tonight. What I've done is uh, we've got all the verses, and it's, it's, it's some, not all the verses, but all the verses that we're going to look at first are the verses that Reformed theologians, predestination folks, put up 
and say, look here, this says predestined. You're gonna see that word over and over again. Even in this Bible, you see the word predestined. It's there. And then, so we, and then after, out of that, we're gonna talk about sort of the five points of Calvinism. There's sort of five points that are distinctive about Reformation theology, Reformed theology, that makes them different. We're gonna talk about that, and then we're gonna go through a chunk of scripture, again, not all of them, but a good many of them, that clearly talk about free will and choice. And we're gonna talk about the Armenian, there's a guy named Arminius who responded, and then Wesley picks it up. Wesley's the founder of Methodism, by the way and their response to the Reformed theologians. We're gonna do it that way because that's the way it happened in history. In the 1600s, Martin Luther, um, the whole big reformation of the Catholic Church, it's when the Protestant Church broke away from the Catholic Church. Martin Luther put up a bunch of theses, I think 95, right? I don't know, 90 something theses on the, the door and there's a big split in the church. And if you're not Catholic and you're Christian, you're Protestant. And so that was the big split in the 1600s or 16th century, 1500s. And part of their rebuttal to the Catholic Church were, were these points. And then a few years later, people started saying, no, 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 no. Okay, so we're gonna look at what they said first and then the response. All right, make sense? Let's start reading scripture. Here's one from Matthew. It says, for many are called, but few are chosen. What does that tell us? What's the key word for somebody who's reformed? Chosen. All right, next one. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. What do they see in this one? Uh, yeah, not only appointed, but before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. So before you ever existed, I set you apart. I predestined you for this life before you ever existed. Let me put another caveat out there before we get too far into this. These, these verses, obviously, we were taking out of context. I don't have time, we don't have time to go through all of it, but I'm gonna put these, these verses and these references up on our Facebook, and I would encourage you to go back and look at the context of these, and then you can start to defy, decide for yourself and start to pick them apart and think, okay, is that really what this verse says? Okay, I mean, clearly here, it seems to say that. Next one. This one's coming from Mark. As soon as he, we're talking about Jesus now, as soon as he was alone, his followers along with the 12 began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables so that while seeing they may, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. What's a Reformed theologian say in that one? Or see in that one? Do you see it? I mean, is it clear? I'm basically hiding this from all the other people because I didn't choose them. And this, this end part, I mean, that's kind of harsh. Because if I explain it to them, they might come back and be forgiven. As if to imply that they're not supposed to be forgiven. Okay, next one. This is Ephesians, so we're, we're talking about Paul. Paul is writing, okay, to the church at Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Predestined according to his will. There it is. All right, next one, please. All right, Romans, again, Paul. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. There's a long string of progression there, but the key obviously here is foreknowledge. Same thing we saw in the Old Testament scripture. I knew you before you were born, and I had plans for you to be saved. That's what a Reformed theologian sees here. Not hard to see that here, I don't think. Okay, next one, Joey. Second Corinthians, again, Paul. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. This one is more about sort of knowledge and revelation than it is about a particular person. But again, a Reformed theologian is going to grab this one and say, look, God's predestining things, predestining revelation. Acts, this is Luke. Luke writes Acts. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Okay? That one um, is even a little more scary in my mind because now, when we talk about predestination in terms of Reformed theology, we're talking about your ultimate heaven-hell decision, all right? We're not talking about God meddling and, you know, going to tell you whether you're going to have Wheaties or Cheerios for breakfast. Reformed theologians will say, you have, you have free will, you have choice within your life. What we're saying is God has chosen you for eternal life to be his son or daughter, and that's what it's going to be, okay? But here, it almost says that the things that they were doing, this one almost sounds sort of meddling, that the actual actions of life are predestined. This one actually appears to go even further. All right, next one, Joy. It says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That's Psalms, that's David, King David. David's known as the man after God's own heart. All right, he's a huge figure in Hebrew history, Jewish history, the, the mighty king, and from his line comes Jesus. Here we have the word ordained, that's a little softer than predestined, but again, a Reformed theologian is going to grab that and say, this is, a, this is a verse that, look, God knew it beforehand. He set it all out there, and it's going to happen. Next one, Joy, please. All right, again, Romans, again, Paul. You notice a trend here? <laughs> Lots of Paul here. It says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So this is Paul quoting, uh, this would be Exodus, where God comes and hardens Pharaoh's heart to his message, so that it sets up this battle between God and Pharaoh, and he's able to liberate his people and be glorified through that. Easy to get predestination out of that one. I have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have uh, compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's my decision, and you'll see that that's, that's going to be a big part of Reformed theolo theology. Next one, Joe, if you would, please. Um, and then this is the actual uh, story from, or part of the story from Exodus. It says, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, that I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Okay, so that's, that's, the, that's where God says I'm going to harden his heart that Paul has just referenced. The next one, Romans, Paul again. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? 
of people. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So Paul's saying that God has picked out from among the Jews and also the Gentiles people upon which he will pour his mercy. The implication is that there are others upon which he will pour his wrath. And so some get mercy and some get justice. Next one. Man, how many predestinations you got for us? <laughs> well, I, I think a lot. And the point is, you need to know that these are, these, are, these are there. Like, we have to struggle with this, okay? Ephesians, all right? Who wrote Ephesians? Paul. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Beforehand preparation. Reformed theologians again see predestination heavily there. All right, Acts. We're back to Luke is writing this one. All right, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So he's talking about the gospel message, and what he's saying is those who had been appointed to eternal life are the ones that believed and received the message. All right, John. And he was saying, he being Jesus, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So it takes God's initiative in order to bring you to Jesus. Lots of verses, right? I told you we're going to look at a lot of scripture. Would we all agree that we all see predestination there? Nate? I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say not necessarily. Okay. Um, the ones that, that wake me out from my, and I, of course, knowing like something about the tension between these two sure. worlds, but kind of trying to like lay that down for a minute and view it again, like new, like you know, freshly. Right. The one, the only ones that really wake me out, suggesting that he's hardening hearts. Okay. And I think that that that's I still have some things I think about that, but. The main reason that I'm saying I'm not completely sure is because I think if you frame that all within the theology that God wills that all be saved, then it still leaves the decision. Like, I, what I'm saying is that could mean that we're, I believe we're all predestined to be, that's what, that's, we're talking about destiny here. I think our destiny is that we are to be saved. That's what he wills for every person. But, okay. this is I, 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 yeah. So, okay, you're clearly on the other side of this argument. Sure, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, because a Reformed theologian says, no, 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 we're not all predestined. Right. All right. Um, flip to the next slide, if you would. And here we have what's known as TULIP. All right, these are the five, TULIP is an uh, acronym or an acrostic. TULIP stands for these things, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Let's talk about those, okay? Because Nate's right. Some of this you have to understand is if you believe in predestination and you go to these verses, of course you see it. Just like if you believe in free will and you go to the verses we're about to see, of course you see it. And if you are looking to undermine them, there are ways you can find to do that too. We have to be honest about that too. It depends on what your perspective is. But let's talk about this. Before we get into those five particularly, we need to talk about this idea of the sovereignty of God. Who has any concept of that term. What does it mean if I say God is sovereign? He doesn't have to answer to anybody else. Okay. Yes. To say that God is sovereign means that he is not influenced by anyone else. All right. 
Um, he is the author, the creator. I mean, he, he created it all, right? Nobody said, hey, God, you need to do this. God said, I'm going to do this, and he did it. And if you, um, by the way, Chris, does this belong to you, or is this on loan? No, it belongs to me. Okay. Chris has this, uh, which a professor just gave to him, um, and I watched it this week. It's really good. Um, a guy, his name's R.C. Sproul. He, yeah. As far as Reformed theologians go, this guy's it. In terms of being able to talk to you, talk to us about what all this stuff means and make it understandable. And so Chris has this. Ask him to borrow it if you want to know about this stuff. Even if you don't agree with it, it's really interesting to understand where they're coming from. And he will, this is four hours long. Obviously, we're not going to talk about everything that's in here tonight. Yeah, I actually opened it and watched it. So. That's, that's really good, and we, I've got other resources for the other side of the argument, too. So if this is really interesting to you and you want to know more, that we've got some resources here that we can direct you to. But this idea of sovereignty of God, and Sproul, you'll hear, and I've been reading some of his stuff, his books. He keeps coming back to, do you believe God is God? And if God is God, he is absolutely sovereign. If he is God, his will will come about. You can't impact his will. You can't say, I mean, it's almost, almost flies in the face of our scripture tonight. You can't plead to God and make God do anything, which in some sense is true. I mean, if you're asking for something from God, you're not going to like force him to do something he doesn't want to do. I don't think any of us would say that, that, that we're going to do that, but they will say, absolutely not. There's nothing that you can do that will impact your salvation even. I mean, that's actually exactly what they say. There's nothing that you can do that will impact your salvation. You're either chosen or you're not chosen. You're elected or not. Who likes that? I'm, I feel super comforted right now. Super comforted? Okay. All right. And, and so here are the, dis, the distinctives of the Reformed tradition, Reformed the, theology. Wesleyan, Arminian, Reformed theology is what we call systematic theology. And systematic theology is exactly what it says it is. It is a system of theology. Theology is theos, God, ology, the study. So it's the study of God and his creation and the Bible ultimately and what it says. And we look at all of the Bible and we build this sort of system of understanding. And so each piece comes in and plays with the other piece. You'll see how these work together. We can't say this one thing is true of this scripture if it's directly contradicted over here. We have to work out how these pieces fit together. And so we have trouble, obviously with this debate we have trouble because there are scriptures that seem to say other things. So we have to start to explain how, you know, we need to re-understand this or how does it all fit together? So when we say systematic theology, we're talking about a broad understanding, a system of understanding how God works. And this is some of the reformed system. Total depravity, all right? I have in parentheses radical depravity. Who knows what that one is? We're screwed. Okay, Nate says we're screwed. Anybody else have anything to add to that one? It's kind of accurate, right? <laughs> some people will misunderstand this one as you can't do anything good at all. There are people who have taken it to mean that. In Reformed theology, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, and that's why I have it in parentheses, radical depravity. And radical means to the root. So we are depraved to the very core of our soul. And what we mean by that is our sinful nature affects everything. It doesn't mean I can't love somebody. It doesn't mean I can't go feed the poor. But what it means is every decision that I make, every uh, motivation that I have is affected by this condition of sin. Does that make sense? For all have you know, sin and falling short of the glory of God. To be truthful, this is not necessarily distinctive. The degree to which they take it is, I think, a little bit distinctive. There are other people, and I don't necessarily think it's 
in the Armenian Wesleyan tradition. Other people will argue that it is, but this idea that we are totally depraved with a little exception that there's part of us still that is good and that part that is good is able to make a choice for God. Whereas a Reformed theologian is going to say, no, 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 everything is colored by sin. And because everything is colored by sin, we are totally depraved. We are morally incapable of making a decision for spiritual good. We are not capable of deciding for ourselves, willing for ourselves to worship God, to follow His will. Sure, we can go do good things, but they're motivated by selfish or sinful desires. Okay, that's, that's sort of an over or overview of total depravity. Unconditional election. There's the word election. That's what started this whole thing for us tonight. All right, the elect. What is unconditional election? Chosen no matter what you do. Chosen no matter what you do. No. <laughs> no, but, it, but to be honest with you, that's what most people think it is. No matter what you do, you're chosen, which in, in one, one sense is good, or is, is correct, but let's rephrase it. And, it. and what it means is that God looks at you and chooses you, and there is nothing that you can do that would condition or change or infringe upon that choice. This is where we see very clearly the idea of predestination, that God has picked Nate, and it doesn't, Nate's response to the grace that God is offering him doesn't come into play. He's going to be saved, because God says he's going to be saved, decides he's going to be saved. All right, does that make sense? I'm not saying you have to agree with this. <laughs> does it make sense? Do you understand what this says? Okay. And you're gonna to start to see here real quick now how these are starting to play together. The third one is limited atonement. Who knows what atonement is? Atonement is the, the act of Jesus' sacrifice bringing us back into right relationship with God, at one minute, bringing us back into oneness with God, into right relationship, okay? And the limited part basically says God or Jesus did not die for everybody because if God is sovereign, God gets what God wants. And so if God died or Jesus died for everybody, everybody would therefore be saved because it's his will. And because that's not the case, God has chosen who he's going to save throughout time. And when Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for those elect people. And so atonement is limited to the elect. Does that make sense? He did not die for everyone. Everyone hates this, I can tell. It's just good, because we're not gonna have arguments. It just pisses you off. <coughs> we'll get to, let me finish, and then we're gonna talk about why it pisses you off, Ryan. And I'm not saying it shouldn't piss you off. Irresistible grace. What, uh, what, do, you, what do you think or know or guess about irresistible grace? Once you've been chosen, you can't resist it. Yeah, and I gotta say that, right? Yeah. I mean, now we're getting into the system. They have to develop all these doctrines in order to make it all make sense. If God has chosen you and Jesus has died for you and God is sovereign, God gets what he wants, that means that the grace that has been accomplished on the cross and given to you, you cannot resist. And that does not mean that God brings you kicking and screaming not wanting to. What it means is God's grace is effectual, all right, is effective. That means that the grace that's poured out on you makes you want, all right, the Holy Spirit changes your wanter. He makes you desire a relationship with him and you come running back to him. His grace is addictive, if you want to think about it that way. You can't get a taste of it and not want to be around it. And then this last one, persis persistence or perseverance of the saints, flows directly out of the last one. It means that once you have been chosen, you can never fall away. That's known as apostasy, okay, this act of I believe now and tomorrow I'm going to say, screw you, God, I'm done, I'm out. 
what happens if you were able to do that? The house of cards comes down for Reformed theology, right? Because all of a sudden grace isn't resistible, that means that God's not sovereign, you know, and as Sproul says, God is God, he gets what he wants. And so if he wants you, all of these have to be true. They just have to be. Now, I do want to point something out. What do we deserve as people? <laughs> I mean, what is, what is just, all right? Why did, why did Jesus come to begin with? To not give us wrath. To not give us wrath, right? To, to pay a penalty. Because what? We deserve death. Like, we have broken the covenant, all right? The covenant of works, all right, there, and Reformed theologians will say this, in the garden, there was a covenant of works. And what they mean by that is God said, here you are, don't do this, and you'll be fine. You do it. It's, it's not on belief. It's not on faith. Their relationship is based on obedience and their action. You, you eat, you're out. You don't eat, we're good. Right? It's a covenant of works. They messed it up. And we all messed it up. We all fail that original covenant. So there is then, after that, a covenant of grace. The grace pays the penalty. Atonement pays the penalty for stepping out of that original covenant. Who likes it? What are you thinking? Okay. Okay, so somebody... All right. Everything that that I have perceived or has been shoved into my brain. A reformed guy or a woman is going to tell you, you're not gonna like it, but God is just, right? And so our human dignity wants to say, that's not fair. It's not fair for God to choose me and not you, or vice versa, that's not fair, okay? But it's just, because everyone gets justice, right? The people he chooses to not save get justice, they get what they deserved. The people who get grace, get grace. So it's not unjust at all. You might not like that, <laughs> clearly Chris doesn't like that, but it, you can't say it's unjust. The limited atonement, or that's what really rubs me. You're saying that Jesus came and died on that cross only for a select few. Yeah, elect. yeah, the people he's gonna elect. Exactly what they say. That takes you off. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I believe it either because God said um, He loved the or He so loved the world that He gave His only Son, God, the whole world, so that if you choose. Doesn't say that's not what it says. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. All the No, for whomsoever believe. <laughs> yeah, and the Reformed theologian says only those. That the believers are the ones that he's elected. Well, God chose, he, he wants all of us. Why? Well, no, he doesn't. But he does. We're his creation. <laughs> no, but I mean, we've just looked at about 100, not 100, but 15 or 20 scriptures that says he's predestined. He says, I will have mercy on whom I want to have mercy, and I will condemn those who I want to condemn. Right? I know I want to say that it's going to be this is an extreme on one side. This is a really extreme. Though. Hang on, we're looking at both sides tonight, okay? Oh, I thought you were saying that this what is right, and I was like, I was starting to that. We got another uh, Wesleyan on our hands. There is a large chunk of Christianity that believes this stuff. Oh yeah, like you, you need to understand that this is not rare, okay? Like. The majority, like, okay. Having this many people in a room that all sort of yeah. divide, I think, on Wesley's side, I'm shocked. It's rare. Like it, That's rare. It's shocking that you are all Wesleyan. 
Yeah. All right, or Armenian, or a couple, pretty well people. <laughs> Robert's that mad that he's leaving. He's like, I don't know if I like this. <laughs> Standing up in protest. All right, let's go to the side that everybody's gonna like more. Um, these are the free will verses, some of them. There are many more. This one um, comes all the way back from Deuteronomy, so we see it all the way into the, the Old Testament. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. So very clearly, here's God setting out a decision, and he says, choose. Here's choice, free will. Okay, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Choose, right? Whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay, that's Joshua saying to the people, you guys choose who you want to serve. I'm going this way. Looks like choice. Looks like free will. Next one, please, Joy. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Yeah, Chris, I think you're going to like a lot of these, all right? First John, all right? This is a letter of John, not the Gospel John. So this is John's writing. The one who does not love God does not go know God, for God is love. And certainly, a loving God wants everybody to be safe. All right, here's Mark. Here's Mark, and I do believe this is Jesus. He says, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Personally, I think that one can go either way. Because there we can say, we go back to, okay, how do they believe? Is he chosen or does they have a choice? But the hardline free will person says that's an example of free will. I'm not so sold on that one. Okay, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from dead, you will be saved. That one's Paul. Yeah, you might be chosen. I mean, we're sort of playing devil's advocate here. But I will tell you, Paul seems to talk out of both sides of his mouth on the issue. All right, then he touched their eyes saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith. Do you see free will there or not? Bart sees both. Who says it's free will? Yeah. That one's not quite so strong, I don't think. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. I don't know about that one. That one's weird. It's on the list, but 2 Corinthians, so we're looking at Paul again, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's not 2 Corinthians. That's got flipped. Sorry about that. That's John 3.16. We should know that one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And a free will person is going to say, whoever means whoever. I mean, that's normally what whoever means. Yeah. 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 And, the, and the reformed guy is going to say, well, that whoever is the one that he elected. Okay. That's the most frustrating part about predestination. If you're arguing a really stubborn person and abuse that, they can just have a little, that, they can just say that after everything, every argument you ever possible, they're always like, well, yeah, that, that's who he chose. Yeah. I don't think everyone, hang on a second. Yeah. All right. Surprise me. Oh, he died for all. Yeah, he died for all. <laughs> yeah. A little tougher on that one, isn't it, Robert? To, oh, it's okay. And I, like I said, I got these references flipped. This one's Paul. He died for all, so that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. All right, next one. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring it. Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build it up or plant it. If it does evil in my sight, 
by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. What's the problem for the Reformed theologian out of that one? This one I think is really strong. It does depend on their actions. Yeah, this one's conditional, right? Yeah. I, have, I had promised to bless this nation, and now they're going to do something to remove the blessing. Sure. All right, that's clearly conditional, right? That blessing is conditioned upon the nation following the command. Next one. These are the ones that I think are really strong, right? This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Who wrote that one? Paul wrote it to Timothy. God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. All right, I told you that we're talking about the quickness of the verse. Like, here we go. All right, he's not slow as we think slow. All right, so God's time is different than our time. I just referenced that earlier, so I thought I'd point that out. But is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. John 12, 32. This is, for me, this is a huge one. This is Jesus himself talking about his crucifixion. This one I will give you a little context. He's talking to his disciples about the day, he says, and if I am lifted up from the earth. What he means by that is when I'm crucified, when I'm lifted off the earth. And if you go and look at this, you see their response. It says, no, 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 you're not gonna die that way. So they clearly understand that that's what he's talking about. We know that it's, this isn't some metaphor, I mean, it is a metaphor or a way of saying it, but it's not some unknown thing. I mean, he is saying, when I am crucified, when I'm lifted up onto the cross off the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Here's a, a sense where I think we are more right to say all means all, right? I mean, that one's kind of clear. I will draw all men to myself. Now, the word for draw is like, I will pull them, all right? Not I will be really nice to them and try to make them come my way, right? <laughs> yeah, I got candy. Yeah, I will actually pull everyone to me, okay? So this is Jesus saying, through my, my crucifixion, everyone will be drawn to me. Here are the Wesleyan-Armenian responses to Tulip. We, and I say we as Wesleyan, Armenian, uh, the other guys, not reformed, right? Um, do agree with total depravity. Well, there's a way to get around that. We're, I'm going to give you a little explanation some of you've heard before. Um, but we do believe that we are all sinful. We believe that his grace was sufficient and efficient, okay? It was sufficient for all. The penalty he paid was a large enough penalty to cover everyone. But is it efficient? It is applied to, it is effective for those who believe. It was for everybody, but we don't want to, we're not universalists. It doesn't cover anybody no matter what. It's, it's effective for those who believe. Which leads to the next one that election is conditional. We do believe in the word election, but our election is conditioned on our response to grace. Now, how we make sense, how Armenian Wesleyan theologians make sense of the word election and these terms predestination Get ready for this one, pay attention. God sits at the beginning of time, and the, the, the metaphor that's used is he looks down the corridor of time. He looks down all of time. He sees everyone, and he knows whether you are going to respond or not. He knows you're going to have a choice. And so he's electing those who he knows will respond to his grace. And so those are predestined 
conditionally because he knows, he foreknows, he knows whether you're going to choose or not. So he, he knows. So in some sense you're destined, but you're destined based upon the fact that he knows you'll choose that. Does that make sense? So, so the mere fact that he knows already doesn't mean that you didn't have a choice. He just knows what you're going to choose. That goes right to predestination of the believer. I sort of lumped those together. And then we do believe in the possibility of apostasy or the following away. We don't adhere to the perseverance of the saints. There are scriptures about the people who will fall away. It's kind of hard to say there aren't those. If, why we're we talking about it in the Bible if it's never going to happen. It's kind of tough. So those are sort of the, the counters. That, that's the way that Wes, Arminius and Wesley responded to the reformers. And among the reformed traditions are Presbyterians, and there are some reformed Baptists. Baptists is a wide swath. There are reformed, there are Armenian, there, it's, it's not one theology necessarily. That their split from the church had to do over the sacrament of baptism, not over this kind of stuff. And so there are people within that denomination of Baptists that believe all of it, depends on which church you're in. So Methodists, Episcopalians, Lutherans, pretty much the rest of us are in this camp. So what I want to do very quickly at the end here is give you what, um, what has been used to, to explain to me and I think makes a very good explanation of how we bridge this. Because one of the things that I, one of the reasons I am in the Methodist church is because um, Wesley is, I think, very good at taking good stuff from all traditions and mashing them together and trying to make sense. And I believe, and Methodism allows, for the fact that, you know what, it's probably not either. We don't really know for sure. It's going to be somewhere in the middle. And so let's be humble about these sorts of things. Those open-handed doctrines we talked about, okay, as a, as a Methodist pastor, I need to sign on to Wesleyanism. But within the Methodist church, you don't have to. You can, you can be reformed and be part of the Methodist church. We would hope, obviously, that you would come to, from the dark side, but <laughs> no, that's, that's not fair. But we, we recognize that there's a plurality of thought, okay, and that this is one big church and we can disagree on the minor things, let's disagree on the major things, and let's be focused about being one church, one, one body. And so I, I really like that, and I think Wesley's picture of salvation makes sense of both sides of this in my mind, and I'm gonna give you a, a quick illustration that we're gonna be done. Reformed the theology, imagine a train station. Some of you know this and you're probably gonna sleep through it, because I've talked about it a lot. Imagine I'm a train station, and headed off this direction to your left is a train that's going to hell, and headed off to your right is the train that's going to heaven. Reformed theology says you're totally depraved. Which train are you on? Yes, you're on this train over here. You're going to hell. You're totally depraved, you're screwed. And there is not a thing in the world that you can do to get onto that one. What has to happen is God says, okay, you I don't want, you I want, I'm gonna pick you up, I'm gonna pull you over here, and I'll plop you on that one. And now you're on your way to heaven. Very simplified, I understand. But in essence, that's what we're talking about. You had nothing to do with it. God looks down on you, says, oh, you're screwed, you're totally depraved, you're sinful, and I pick you, and I'm gonna free you, and my grace is gonna put you over here and everybody else is still on that train. Wesley's a little more complicated. Wesley says, he agrees that we're all totally depraved. He says the natural human being can not at all decide for God. He agrees we're totally depraved. We're on that train. Where he departs from the very outset is sa says, there are, however, no natural human beings. 
there are only actual human beings. And because Jesus' sacrifice, his atonement, is sufficient, he has what he calls provenient grace. And this is the idea that God is coming to you, and this sounds kind of like election. It is kind of like election. Here's why I kind of like this, because it's, it's sort of, for me, it's down the middle. Um, he says, God's grace, Jesus' atoning sacrifice, brings his grace to everyone. We are actual human beings, and we all exist under provenient grace, that God has extended at least some degree of his grace, not, not that he saved us all, we're not universalists, but he has been graceful enough, and that the sacrifice has done enough that he's able to come to us and basically get us out of the train. All right, some people will say what that does is it picks us up and puts us on the train station. Others will say it makes us aware that we're in that one. Pick either way, okay? Either way, what it means is you are now aware of your situation. You are now on the footing where you have, you can see the options. So if you wanna think about yourself still on the train, what you now know is I'm screwed. <laughs> I need to get off this train. So you jump off the train. If you're on the train station, you look and you say, uh-oh, I know I don't wanna follow that one. That one's gone. I gotta, I gotta go follow that one. Either way, you turn and you book it towards the, the heaven train, right? You don't want to go to hell, do you? I mean, if you are, when you become aware of that situation, right? No one wants to go to hell. So you do everything in your power to get to heaven. All right, what's the problem with that statement? There's everything in your power, I guess. Say that again? Everything in your power. Yes, all right. At this point, we know what our situation is, and we're trying to remedy it ourselves. And what the analogy says is, you can try as hard as you want, you can muster all you want, but sooner or later what you realize is you're running at 11.999 miles an hour, and unfortunately that train's booking it at 12. And so the harder and harder you try, it just gets further and further away. At which point, you realize, I can't do it. And you fall down exhausted on that train track. It's at that moment that you have to say, dear God, I can't do this, come help me. And it's at that point, Wesley says, Right, or the people interpreting Wesley say, that God reaches down, picks you up, and puts you in the train. And so we still have grace active, we still have total depravity, the idea that if we were not, if we were not for grace, if we were not for Jesus and the things that he's done and God's love for us, we would never have the option of approaching God. But we say that that grace is extended to all, and so that we all have the choice. And we must realize that we have the choice to accept what Jesus has done for us. We have the choice to jump out and say, okay, God, now I need your help getting on the other train. And what Wesley says is that when we're in that state, when we're in that other train, we now are able to participate with God in our own sanctification. That is, we now work with God. We now have our effort, our works flowing out of our faith that help to regenerate and create a new being in us. Regeneration process has started by the initiation of the sacrifice and the Holy Spirit, but we are now to participate in that sanctification. Paul says we are to work out our salvation with fear and troubling. That's a process. And we will fall off. We will look back and we will realize that, uh oh, I jumped off the train, I didn't even know it. Now I'm trying to do it myself. As soon as I try to do it myself, I realize the train's moving faster than I can move. Dear God, come help me again, please. And that, you know, the truth be told, that's a constant process. Falling off, getting back on, falling off, getting back on. For me, that makes sense. <coughs> I don't know if that makes sense for you. Wesley was really good, like I said. Wesley pulled from Catholicism. He pulled from 
Protestantism. He pulled from some you know, early charismatic stuff. I mean, he, he grabbed everything good that he could and sort of said, here, this is all good, right? And so he, in my mind, he allows for sort of both sides of the argument in there. I, I see both election, but election for all, and then a response. Now, a Reformed theologian is going to hate that, obviously, sure. because we have something to do there. Does the, does the analogy make sense? For me, that makes sense. When we talk about systematic theology, we can fit all of the verses we looked at in there. We're kind of back to what Robert was talking about, though. Like, if that's your perspective, of course you can find places. So, again, we need to be honest about it. I just told you that God's work of salvation was like a train. It's not, all right? It's not a train, right? I, that's, that's how we make sense of it. We, we don't know. <laughs> it's not a train, you know? It's not Thomas the Train or whatever his name is. Um, the, the truth is, it's, it's probably not that either. There's, there's, it's a mystery. Part of the problem over the last several hundred years in the church is we have been way too arrogant about our reason and our ability to understand. I mean, one of the tenets of an enlightenment, the, the things that they put forth and assumed was that God was reasonable, so if we apply our reason, we can know the mind of God. Well, if that's not eating an apple, I don't know what is. You basically said, I'm as good as God if I just use my reason. I can do it all myself, right? No, you can't. And so w one of the nice things about being sort of into the postmodern world, there's some bad stuff, there's some good stuff. One of them is we're not quite so arrogant about our reason. I'm okay saying, you know what, I don't know. I can't figure it out. God's a God of mystery, and there's a paradox in there, and I'm okay with that. All right? An enlightenment person's going to flip out. i got to have an answer. I don't have to have an answer. All right? i got something that satisfies me for now. Someday we'll know. Now, having said all that, what's the point of both sides? Jesus, right? <laughs> I mean, ultimately, the point of all of it is Jesus, right? And so both sides agree that we have a God who loves us. And, and so let's look at it personally for a moment. Whether you responded or you elected, and if truth be told, as I look at my story, sometimes on the, on the front end it looked like I had a choice, and as I look at it going back, I think, I don't know how much choice I had. I was sort of drawn to that, right? I mean, it kind of plays both ways, even in our own stories. Right? But the truth is that we have a God who draws us. If you're sitting here, you've been drawn, at least to some extent. And so the question then is, how are you going to respond to that? Are, are you going to be a frozen chosen? Or are you going to be the new, sort of the new Presbyterian that realizes there's work to be done? You know, are you going to be a Wesleyan who forever have been talking about social justice? Because God talks about social justice. That's a term we'll define later on. Don't flip out if you have aversions to that term. Some people do. The point is that God loves you. And he has put in place a plan to bring you back into right relationship with him. And so the question is, do you believe it? We can argue about how you believe it or why you believe it. Do you believe it? And what are you going to do about it? All right, I know that was really heady and a lot of scripture and a lot of information and we've gone along tonight and I apologize for that. Um, but I wanted to give you as much as I could an objective view of both. Obviously, I come down on one side. I think we all come down on that one side now based on what you said. So now that all our brains are fried, let's try and uh, unfry them with some worship. So I'll say a prayer and then we'll move into that. Heavenly Father, you are an amazing God. And the truth of the matter is that the ways in which you have worked, even in our own personal lives, we don't understand. Not fully, anyway. We know that you are a God of love. We know that you are a sovereign God. 
We know that you sent your son into this world so that he might die to pay a penalty that we should have paid. And we know that for certain. And how exactly that happens on some level is irrelevant to us. And so now as we come to worship, Lord, help us to put aside uh, our intellectualism, our rationalism, our critical analysis, And let us understand that ultimately it's about you and your son and our relationship with you. And in this moment, we ask that you would draw us closer to you. That we might be in more relationship with you than we did the moment we walked through this door. Be present with us now. Hear our worship, hear our prayers, hear our praise. For you are an awesome, magnificent, wonderful, powerful, sovereign, loving God and worthy of all we have to offer. We pray all of this in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit. Amen.